The Kaplan Community Podcast is a platform for the wider Kaplan community to share ideas and insights that can guide us on our professional and academic development. It's easy to listen to, but tackle some hard-hitting issues. And we think it's a great way to appreciate diverse perspectives on life, learning, and careers. Hi, my name is Will James, and I am the National Careers Manager at Kaplan Business School. So far, in season two of this podcast, we've discussed organizational well-being, student experience, and academic well-being. And now we will focus on important concepts related to career well-being and professional well-being. So we're joined today by our National Careers Manager, Will James. Thanks for being on the show, Will. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I'm very interested to speak with you about this theme, career well-being, and get your take on it. What does career well-being mean to you? You know what? For me, it's actually a relatively kind of a new concept. It's not really probably something I've been really aware about. Probably uh, I've only been really uh, aware of it for the last five years. But putting it simply, career well-being for me is it's all about how you feel about your job today. It's about how you feel about your career prospects tomorrow uh, and how your work is helping you achieve what you want out of life. So when you go to work, it's thinking about how does going to work actually make you feel? Do you think about where it's taking you? Do you feel satisfied with your direction? Does it align with your future goals. So career well-being for me isn't just about how we feel about work then. And in fact, you know, when we look at the research, particularly that's come out of Gallup, they're, they're saying that career well-being actually has a huge impact across other aspects of your life. And I think ultimately it comes back to all of us individually wanting that sense of purpose and having a clear, a clear path forward with opportunities to advance and acquire new skills as we kind of go along in our professional careers. I know in my personal experience, you know, I didn't feel like I had found my purpose until I was about 27. You know, that's, that's pretty late. But I feel like I spent the majority of my 20s feeling like I was stuck, you know, in a rut and I really didn't truly understand my purpose and my passion until you know, late in my 20s. So I hope that that explains, I mean, to me, that's what career well-being is all about. I think that makes a lot of sense and it sounds really relevant. You're absolutely right. It can have an effect on all other aspects of well-being if it's something that we spend such a large chunk of our time doing is working. And Will, I actually saw you posted on LinkedIn recently about the podcast that you were going to do. You, you had a survey. Mm-hmm. And, and you're posting your ideas. I'm really interested because I, I took part in the survey. I'm interested if you could share that with us. I think, you know, it, 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 the, the, when I was doing the research, it kind of came back to that question of, you know, a lot of people feel that sometimes they're in a job or they're in a career and they feel like it's not leading them anywhere. They kind of feel like it's, it's stagnating. And I think, well, I think the most important thing to recognize there is that if you feel that your job isn't leading you anywhere, it's, it's your responsibility to change that. I think it's great that you're able to recognize it, but I think you really need to understand that you are the only one that can change that direction. 
And an example of that is just generally feeling bored at work. When I was doing research for this podcast in terms of career well-being, I found an article by the BBC that said what they, they term bore out. It doesn't get as much attention as burnout, but experts say that this new phenomenon, which occurs across industries, can result in really bad health problems for workers. So, so bore out is basically, it basically means when you have chronic boredom at work. If you have chronic boredom at work, it can lead to cyber loafing, slacking, but also just general job dissatisfaction and poorer mental health. And so it's kind of intertwined with career well-being. So anyway, I put it, yeah, I put the poll up on my LinkedIn because I wanted to ask my network. I thought surely that, I mean, I have experiences in my life and in my career. I thought surely other people have too. So I put it out on LinkedIn and I said, you know, has anybody felt terribly bored in a job, ever had those moments where you're having a crisis of growth or having a crisis of meaning in your life? And the results were staggering. I think it was the post was seen by over 6,000 people on LinkedIn and there was over 100 people that voted. And from that vote, there was a staggering 86% of my network said that they had felt bore out, chronic boredom in, in their life. Um, and, and that's everyone from CEOs to business consultants to nurses to teachers, a range of professionals or voting, not to mention countless messages and comments from people saying, oh, my God, I've, I've felt this. You know, people never talk about it. This is a taboo topic. So I think it's really interesting. I think this is something you feel when you do feel like your job is leading nowhere. And I think the answer comes back to the self. There is a lot of personal accountability in feeling that way. And it is up to you to make that change. And if you're fortunate enough to be in a job and feeling that now, I think ultimately it starts with having a conversation. It starts with having a conversation with your boss or your manager which is a hard thing to do and I understand that, but it does start with a conversation. You know, for example, if you were to go to your, your boss and say, how can you help change my routine and my responsibilities? How can you help me feel more stimulated and engaged? So it's actually, it actually comes back to good leadership. I just hope that, you know, if you're experiencing this, you have a great leader or manager who can assist there. But if not, then maybe that's your calling. Maybe that's the action. You know, you, you have to put some time into building an action plan to proactively make a career move. I was going to ask that question about your LinkedIn article and bore out as well, because, Will, one of the interesting things is that we commonly associate loneliness with emotional distress and, and mental health. Mm. But the, another big factor of emotional well-being is boredom. So that leads to a lot of stress. So the question, it was very interesting to hear you talk about what you can do with your boss in order to try to reinvigorate your career. But did you find things that people can do personally to take initiative on their own to make their job more exciting and engaging? Yes, I do. What can someone do if they feel like they're really bored or they feel like they're stuck in a rut? Right? Like, What are some practical things that we can do to really navigate out of that. And, and for those playing at home who may not really understand what that means, like being stuck in a rut, it's, it's a pretty awful feeling. It's that feeling that you get when it's almost like a feeling of resentment, like you're caught up in the negative, pessimistic, low patterns of thinking and finding it impossible to get, you know, yourself out of that funk. You know, you, you hate going to work, you resent today, 
you're thinking about where am I going tomorrow, you know, constantly questioning questioning whether your work serves a purpose in the bigger scheme of life. And as you're saying, Richard, it, it actually does. It causes a lot of mental anguish. It makes us feel really awful. It's not pleasant. So, you know, if if you feel like you're in a rut, you really need to sit down and do some deep reflection. I think it starts with that at, at the very beginning. And that is more so, so that you can start to proactively plan a way out of that mindset. So it starts with thinking about times when you've actually really enjoyed the work that you do, when you feel, when you have felt like you were doing your best work, when you felt motivated and fully engaged at work or, you know, doing something extracurricular. I think when you reflect on that and you visualise those environments where you felt really engaged and really happy, think about the actions you were doing at that time, I think you can start to see some patterns there. So some tips there, you know, ask yourself questions, like sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and do some reflective exercises. Ask yourself some questions. You know, in that time, did you have a personal goal that wherever you were working, your work to help you achieve them? Were you surrounded by a really great team and colleagues, people that you respected? Did you have an amazing manager, you know, that managed, not just managed to lead you, but empowered you and mentored you? Did you feel like your strengths were being utilised? And what are your strengths? What can you play to? So I think starting with those questions and answers allows you to move closer to finding what I said before was your purpose and your passion. And that is when you feel truly engaged and happy at work. And you feel like you're actually putting, you know, a bit of an action plan together to get yourself out of that rut. So you've got me reflecting on my own journey, this discussion of, of sort of personal accountability as well. I, I can remember in the first few years of my career and right when I got to Australia, I made career decisions based largely on how I could get to the next salary bump or the next title. I was very uh, interested in, in climbing ladders and I'd, I'd feel proud of myself and, and learn the new responsibilities of a new role. But then I'd, I'd have a sort of emptiness because I, I never actually stopped to see, is this something that would make me feel fulfilled? So that's, that's something that's taken me actually more focused to land jobs that are more aligned, what, what would make me feel good. How about you in your career? What, what do you think you can do to actually identify those priorities or have they changed as your career has progressed? My priorities definitely have changed. You know, I presented yesterday on this topic of your personal brand and I gave examples of my personal brand and I kind of was teaching the students there about how my personal brand has changed over the last 10 years you know, I've gone from being a student to a teacher and then a recruitment consultant and then somebody who works in careers and higher education to taking on a leadership role to going back to being a student. Like it's constantly changing and about and you're constantly evaluating, I guess, your, your brand and where you're kind of headed. And I think the key message for me, and I think in terms of identifying what your purpose and your passion is, is first starting off with, uh, I think we all need to identify that growth mindset for everybody and really truly understand that lifelong learning is integral to a long-term sustainable career and that intertwined with that is your purpose and your passion. 
And I think in, in today's day and age, careers are rapidly changing. So gone are the days where we, where we leave school and we have one career for the rest of our lives. You know, like Richard, probably your parents, my parents, you know, they've had the same career their whole lives. Professionals today are averaging, you know, seven different careers over their lifetime. So it, it's really important to understand that your purpose and your passion is constantly evol- evolving and a, a growth mindset, um, building that growth, growth mindset for yourself is integral so that you can continue to take on and look for opportunities throughout your professional career. And it doesn't restrict you to one specific area. For me, I've just noticed that it's, it's changed quite a lot. And I think the one thing that has kept me on this journey and gotten me to where I am today is just by being a lifelong learner and constantly looking for opportunities to learn and grow and implement my learnings in every job that I've had. It's kind of presented so many different opportunities for me. But at the same time, I've been able to identify new passions and new purposes along the way. I've identified them and I've kind of gone with them as I've as time has gone on. You know, Will, I've been listening and you've actually made me think of lifelong learning and mindset in a different way. So, for example, I'm reflecting on my career and thinking of the times when on a Sunday evening, I start regretting having to wake up on Monday to go to work. And by Friday, I'm just so excited to leave. And each time I've reached that point in my career, I've reached it on three different jobs. And I finally had the courage to leave. And it was the best thing I ever did because the next job I got was so much better. I only ever improved. So you made me think in your comment about mindset. And I think when I reached that point, I had a very fixed mindset. Mm. And then when I was able to bounce back and recover, so to speak, gain the confidence and find a new job, I feel like I had a real personal growth and some real emotional resilience. So I'm wondering, you've made me think of mindset, of growth mindset and lifelong learning as being pretty much the same. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. Kieran, one of your questions was like, for me personally, how have I personally stayed engaged and moved my career forward? And it comes back to that same principle of lifelong learning. And ultimately, that, that's kind of how I've been able to understand what I actually am passionate about in life. Because, I mean, you guys know, like three years ago, I started my MBA at KBS. And I simply did that because I had a thirst for learning. But that experience ended up being transformational for me. It took three years, but, you know, it was, it was truly amazing. It gave me a lot of zest and energy. And yes, it was tiring and challenging at times, but, you know, I did that because I wanted to apply new learnings to my work. You know, I obviously have an ultimate goal. I'd love to have a business one day. And so there was also some interest there to learn about that. But, you know, I think it it does, Richard, it it really comes back to, yeah, identifying your passions and your purpose and then realigning that with this concept of lifelong learning and having a thirst for learning and a growth mindset. I think it all intertwines. And ultimately for me, that has allowed me to have a pretty good and stable um, career well-being throughout throughout my life. Sure, there's been moments of how it ups and downs like anyone, but generally that has kept me on the right path. It drives all of the careers initiatives that sort of help students towards employability, towards getting jobs and internships. And if we're talking about maybe more established professionals and, and the idea of being stuck in a rut, 
Well, we've mentioned the idea several times of, well, look to your next step or consider your priorities. Then I would ask, do you have any advice for somebody who is seeking to make a big change? There's seven careers within a lifetime now. So what happens if you realize, well, geez, I'm working in healthcare, but I really belong in tech. And so how do you go about doing that, making a big shift in your career? It's a good question. I would say that we tend to underestimate the importance and the value of transferable skills. For career movers, I think that is such a poignant part of selling yourself in a new discipline or industry is really identifying what those transferable skills are. And in, and in a lot of cases, we see, so, I mean, you know, we work predominantly in the, in the business sector, but so many cases where employers say, look, we just weight soft skills, transferable soft skills, so much heavier than technical skills. And we see that in so many different industries. You know, soft skills are things like communication, collaboration skills, resilience, emotional intelligence, initiative, work ethic, analysis, critical thinking skills. So it's identifying what those soft skills are, things that you feel you're really good at, your strengths, and then being able to solidify those and sell them to prospective employees when you are making those career pivots. Because ultimately, too, it comes down to culture and team fit. We can teach skill, but as long as you come to us with these really enhanced soft skills and an understanding and a great understanding of, you know, collaboration and emotional intelligence, we can teach you the rest. And I think that's even the case at KBS. We, we even hire internally within, we really look to that team and culture fit and a well-rounded professional who really has great transferable soft skills, less so than technical skills, because we know that we can teach that. So, yeah, I mean, the top three skills demanded by employees today is customer service, organization and time management and digital literacy. You can't tell me that, you know, in any job that you would have, that you wouldn't have those three things. And if you don't, then you have a goal there to, you know, really hone in on those skills and make some improvements there because they're the top three skills demanded by employees today. Well, I'm really keen on this idea of team fit and how to make sure that I can work well with my colleagues. Mm. But, you know, Kieran and I are both international. We've come to Australia. We've had to learn how to work with Australian companies. So I'm curious what your opinion is. How do I, as an international student, as a, as a migrant, how do I understand, how do I learn how to fit in with the team that I'm trying to work with here in Australia? Mm. When I was thinking about this question, I actually spoke to some of my team members who work in my team, the majority of which were international students. And uh, I spoke to Nisha, so she's one of my colleagues. She's originally from India. And I said to her, you know, how is that something, how did you deal with struggling, you know, to fit into Australia? Did you experience any of that, that challenge or any of those struggles? And she said, yeah, of course she did. But one thing that she did was, which is really cool, she actually learned as much as she could about rugby. And she knew that was kind of like a topic that she could use to break the ice and kind of get to know people. And she would just start talking about rugby in like the staff room. And then, you know, it started to, the start, conversation started to happening, happen and she started to make friends. And 
I think that's just such a wonderful proactive idea to kind of get a conversation going. And she, you know, she said the importance of learning colloquial words and even understanding Australian humour. We're a bit weird in Australia. I think we have weird slang and weird banter, but it's key. It's key to the Australian workplace environment. And it's hip there, you know, even understanding colloquialisms is, is watch Australian TV and film, you know, absorb as much of that as you can so that you understand the context in which people converse in Australia. My other colleague, Kim, uh, Kim's from Malaysia, and she was saying that when she first came over to study in Australia, she found that whole assimilation process really challenging. And she said that she noticed a lot of the Australian students kind of stuck together as they all kind of went to high school together and they had their little cliques. And she said she just started by by forcing herself to have small conversations with people to actually figure out what they were talking about. So she wanted to know what topics they liked talking about in their little groups. And she said she did that a lot of that when she was volunteering at uni and even volunteering helped her massively. And from that, she was able to kind of steer her conversations in a way that she knew people would want to talk about or be interested in talking about. And I think, you know, it's tough. It's challenging for international students, I know, because so many of them tend to stick to the, to the, to the people from their same background and culture because it's easy and you feel like a sense of belonging there. But it's so important to proactively diversify your friend circles and mix up with various cultures because ultimately that's how you're going to learn and you're going to feel more comfortable in various Australian settings. There are other great things you can do like, you know, language exchange clubs on meetup.com and, you know, LinkedIn network groups or associations. I think it's just about meeting new people and, and really having conversations, even in a small way, with people to learn some of the strange things that, that us Aussies like to talk about. I think it's great, the stories from Kim and, and Nisha and how it's obviously you can intertwine social well-being and careers well-being. And, and I'd say even as some people, when you say career well-being, they might think along the lines of financial well-being, but it's perhaps more of a social thing and more about purpose, as we've discussed. Now, your expertise at KBS, you often are dealing with students who are trying to get either their first job in Australia or perhaps they're uh, a job that's related to their field. And so there's a lot of job seekers. There's a lot of discussion of recruitment practices. Mm-hmm. The main thing that stands out to me about that when I, when I think about recruitment is the rejection that I've faced. When I go and apply for jobs and I look at my well-being and think, geez, I've applied for who knows how many jobs, but <laughs> you either get a, a no thank you or no response at all. And, and it's a bit disheartening. So what would you say to that about the recruitment process and what would you recommend? Yeah, it's a good one. You know what? It's it's a universal feeling, Kieran. Like everybody has 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 been through that, has been rejected by a job, uh, an interview. And it's it's not nice. It's an awful feeling. And I think, you know, you know, there are there are some barriers for international students. And I know that sometimes well, we've seen them take it really personally, but that is our always our number one tip to our students, it's to never take rejection personally. It, often it does not mean 
that you are inferior and that you're not good enough compared to other candidates. A lot of the time it comes down to things like cultural fit. And we talked about that before. You know, you could have 200 applicants for one role and only one person is successful. So already it's a challenge, right, applying for a job. So even if you get called for an interview, that's a huge plus. That's a massive positive to be called for an interview out of 200 applicants. Like, well done. I think it's important when you're dealing with rejection to really take the time to thank the company and, you know, the, the, the recruiter or the hiring manager for taking the time because you just never know when you might encounter them again in the future. They may come back to you in six or 12 months and say, look, we met you last year for this role. We've, we've got this role here. Would you be interested? We've seen that happen countless times um, before. So don't burn your bridges is what we would say. Often everything happens for a reason. I say that to my team all the time. So don't worry about the small things. They work out for, for, for your good and in line with your destiny. Always remember that. And learning from your gaps and your shortcomings by asking for that feedback when you are ejected. Feedback is key so that it can really assures you that you can fill any of those gaps and position yourself better moving forward. It kind of steers your job search in a different direction sometimes. So actually asking for feedback is really key for you making improvements to your job search. Well, you mentioned earlier about some of the challenges that international students may face in trying to get that first job and to launch that career. Mm-hmm. And at KBS, we, we really are sincerely interested in getting our students employed. But what are the main services and how can we try to help students achieve that career well-being? Yeah, look, I think when you, when you become a KBS student, we always say to our students, it's really important to engage with our Career Central team. I'm biased, right? I say that, but I genuinely mean it. I say start by engaging with the Career Central team as early in your, as early in your degree as you can. Because it takes time for us to really truly understand what our students' career goals are and their career trajectories in line with what we were talking about throughout this podcast, your purpose and your passion. Understanding what your purpose and your passion isn't something that you can usually work out overnight. It takes some time to figure that out. So, you know, we really spend the time with each and every student that we meet with to identify their strengths. And we use those strengths to provide career guidance. I mean, at KBS, we're constantly driving our students towards building those growth mindsets, as we said before. And a key part of that is building up our students so that they can become as resilient as possible to equip them with the tools and techniques to make some of those career pivots, particularly in a rapidly changing employment market. And, you know, even right now with COVID happening, resilience is more important than ever. I think if you've been able to get through this, you know, the, the last year and a half studying or working, you've, you've probably displayed a huge amount of resilience, which is great. We're always encouraging students, um, Richard, to try new things. We, we often say you need to fail to learn those lessons. A great way for students to try new things is by taking on internships and volunteering. It's a brilliant way to see potentially what you like and what you don't like in an industry or in a particular career field. 
because it allows you to ultimately steer your career in various directions. I mean, we have counsellors located in every campus at KBS. They are an invaluable resource to provide, you know, that confidential mental health support when we're talking about career well-being. Well-being impacts so many other parts of your life. It's important to have a service like that. Even our lecturers, you know, our lecturers are business leaders in their own fields and are wonderful sounding boards. And sometimes, you know, Richard, you know this, you're sometimes a counsellor too, which is, which is great, but, you know, you can, you can rely on that to have those conversations as a student with, with our lecturers. I guess what I love ultimately about KBS is that we've really created this sense of belonging and family you know, within every single campus across Australia. And that is so important for students, particularly international students, when they're so far away from home and it's so pivotal to their well-being overall. And I guess, you know, that's why our students have rated our student support and quality of educational experience higher than every public university in Australia. Go KBS. You know, I would also say for KBS students and alumni, from a well-being perspective, I consider those careers advisors are sort of like a support network. We've spoken in these podcasts about well-being and reaching out for help, taking advantage of support and, and knowing who's on your side. So I think it's important to acknowledge that in the world of careers, we have support too. And, and I am very frequently telling alumni take the opportunity. You've got free careers counseling. If you're not a KBS student or graduate, it could be your colleagues or your boss, but it shows the importance of those interpersonal relationships. Mm. Will, do you have any, anybody that you go to for support or any tips on developing support network? In my current role, Absolutely. Um, Alex Ring-Clark, who I think is also appearing on this podcast, uh, Student Experience Wellbeing. Alex is one of those leaders who is a genuine mentor and he's, he's almost like a teacher, more, than, more a teacher than anything. He doesn't necessarily manage me. He leads me and he mentors me and he teaches me. So I think in terms of my own professional development and personal development and well-being, Having someone like Alex just to, as a sounding board, to talk over things is so critical for me personally to be able to digest and think of new ideas and strategize with. So he is integral to that, pro- to that process. I built a lot of trust with Alex too. I'm conscious that, I mean, before we talked about this idea of, you know, when you're bored at work, you need to be able to have those really honest conversations. And it starts with you taking responsibility to have those conversations with your boss. I have a relationship with Alex where I can go to him and say, look, I'm, I'm not stimulated at the moment. Can you give me some more work over here? Or I'm interested in this project. Can I lend myself services there? So building that relationship with your network, your peers, your colleagues at work, your boss is really integral for you to really make sure that your career well-being is looked after. Ultimately, it's, it's the employer's best interest to ensure that you're engaged at work, right? Because we know that engagement at work results in more productive workers, which impacts the business's bottom line. So it's in their best interest to make sure that you're engaged and you're happy at work. So have the conversation if you're not. And, you know, we're talking about network. Like I, I talk to family and friends all the time. I talk to, you know, 
other mentors in the industry or other people from careers backgrounds, careers practitioners. I have a psychologist as well who is amazing and is almost like a life coach. Those people can really help you through some of those deep reflective questions that we were going through before and really allows you to understand what your purpose and your passion is so that you can address some of those actions, those, those proactive actions to move your, your career forward in, in the direction that you want it to go. It occurred to me, going back to an earlier conversation we had, Will, where you mentioned that lecturers themselves are a good source of career guidance. And we're talking about that network and students who may not have a boss like Alex can go to their lecturer. Yeah. I've got to turn around and say, the reason why we're teaching is because we love teaching. A lot of us still have careers in corporate. We can give you that advice, but we just need to be asked. And it's yes. really quite unusual for a student to walk up to a lecturer to ask that question. Basically, what do you like about your job and what you don't? But if you did ask that question, lectures would be quite forthcoming in telling you a really honest answer. So I, I did want to bring that in too and reinforce your observation that not only should you have a good boss, but to reinforce your or build your personal networks like what you've done with friends and family and for that matter, psychologists. Yeah. And, and we have seen examples of this, Richard, you know, where students have built really strong business relationships, you know, with lecturers where they've, they've sought advice from lecturers who have entrepreneurship backgrounds, where students want to start building businesses, you know, here in Australia. And we've, we've seen countless times where le- lecturers have been professional references for our students because they know them so well. They work on projects together or, you know, they, they had them as a student in their class and they, they, they saw their portfolio of work and things like that. So it, it's, it's invaluable to build those networks when you are a student at KBS, but that it's wide ranging. And that network is, it's from lecturers, it's from peers that you're, you're learning with, it's campus staff, it's careers advisors, it's, you know, our leadership team within KBS, our leadership team knows students by their first name. So you've really got to make a lot of effort to, to really make sure that you're nurturing and building your professional work network here in Australia, because we know that when you are new to Australia, you don't necessarily have a large network here. So it's important that you take those proactive steps to start building that network when you do get here. You know, I've, I'm lucky enough as well to have, have a really great manager. But I want to ask actually a, a bit of a difficult question is what do I do if I have a bad manager? What, what should somebody do if they're listening and, and they've got somebody who just really micromanages them or uh, is uh, emotionally say un- unstable to deal with or something like that what what can i do yeah i've had one of those managers karen and it was awful but you know what what's weird about it is that i stayed in that role for two and a half years and i kind of look back and i think why did i stay for that long when he was that horrible he was awful just a micromanager just everything you would hate about a boss but they exist you know and it's wild but they do exist and maybe don't do what I do and sit in that chair for two and a half years and cop it because it probably wasn't very good for my mental well-being. But I remember at that time, like I, you know, when it got quite bad, like I started to really reach out to my network and ask the questions to say, look, I'm, I'm in the market. I'm looking for some new opportunities. I'm not 
you know, thoroughly enjoying my current work and I'm really looking for new opportunities to grow and learn. Yeah, Will, just to finish off from me, if there was one thing that you could recommend for somebody and they were saying, I want to take my career to the next level, what should I work on as National Careers Manager? What would you say? So hard, Kieran. You know what? It comes back to that same idea of having a growth mindset and being a lifelong learner. Honestly, it's that. It's really just understanding that learning doesn't end. It's just a continuous journey and you have to constantly look for new opportunities to absorb new skills, learn new things, meet new people for you to be able to move your career forward so that you know you can do what you really want to truly do and be happy with that. I love it. Keep on learning and, and it makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you very much for sharing with us today, Will. I have learned a lot about career well-being that I did not know before, and it's really nice to get your insights. Thank you, Will. You caused me to reflect on my own career and and think about what I wish I would have done had I had your advice. No worries. Thanks for having me. It was great. If you're feeling unwell or in need of help, reach out. Anyone in Australia can get immediate mental health support by calling the National Lifeline on 13 11 14. And Beyond Blue has great 24-7 support staff at 1300 22 46 36. Kaplan employees can contact HR or access free counseling. KBS students have access to free confidential campus counselors, safety and support services such as Sonder. Reach out to your campus student experience team for friendly guidance on accessing these services.